Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry Rowland there. And this is Stuff You Should Know, an outdoorsy edition if there ever was one. Is that your uh, American Masters voice? Kind of. <laughs> it's got a little Bob Ross to it. Uh, oh, happy birthday, Bob Dylan, by the way. Happy 80th birthday to one of the great legends, speaking of great Bobs. Oh, okay. I was like, how is that apropos of anything? Well, you said Bob. Made yeah, me think I of gotcha. Dylan. There, there's a lot of online uh, congratulations going around. That's good. So throw me in there. I know you don't care about Bob Dylan, but no. I do. That's fine. And you apparently you don't care about John Muir because, boy, you were snotty about this. I have no problem <laughs> with John Muir. Well, that's not exactly He's not the true. only one. A lot of other people doing stuff. It's a... Uh, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Let's just get into this, shall we? So we're talking John Muir today. And that name might sound familiar if you're not a member of Sierra Club. If you're a member of Sierra Club, you probably just dropped to your knees and did the secret sign when I said John Muir. Sure. Just had to do it again because I said John Muir. And there it goes again. Sure. <laughs> Every time we say John Muir, the Sierra Club members have to do something weird. Uh, or if you've ever hiked any portion of the John Muir Trail that was named after him. Is that in Yosemite? It's in California. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's part of it's in Yosemite, I think. I should okay. have looked that up. Well, he is – I asked that because he's basically synonymous with Yosemite. He was a huge driving force in getting Yosemite um, into national park status and then fully becoming yeah. the Yosemite that we understand it today. Have you ever been? Um, no, I haven't. And I really wanted to because I yeah. saw some pictures online. <laughs> and it looks really nice. It uh, – I've been to quite a few amazing national parks in the United States. Not all of them. So I've been to Yellowstone. Um, but I've been to a lot of them. And Yosemite is really – it's really up there. Mm-hmm. It is one of the more special places. It looks like it. It's pretty incredible. Um, but so John Muir, he, he played a huge role in Yosemite becoming a national park. But also, like, it's really kind of selling short the impact that he had on um, – the the creation of our national park system, mm-hmm. but also like the idea of what a national park is, what wilderness is, what needs to be protected, how we protect it. Mm-hmm. He was certainly not working in a vacuum in that sense. He was kind of tapped into this larger way of thinking for better or worse, but he was a huge driving force. And one of the reasons he was a huge driving force for getting America into preserving wild spaces in the face of the second industrial revolution that yeah. was just minting money and building railroads and just turning America into a powerhouse um, because he he walked the walk for sure. He was, he was not just some, you know, eastern, you know, greenhorn who, mm-hmm. who <laughs> had never set foot in the wilderness but liked the idea of it. Yeah, right. He went and lived it for sure. Like he did some really wild stuff while he was living in Yosemite at the time. Yeah. In fact, uh, later when he was in his late 30s, he was hooked up with uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was older, and they really bonded. They went on a camping trip together. And um, I think Emerson was like, what you need to do is come back to Boston. Emerson or Thoreau? Emerson. Okay. And he said, you need to come back to Boston and be among the intelligentsia uh, advocating for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the time, John Muir was like, no way, man. 
<laughs> no way, dude. Like, I got I to gotta be in the woods, bro. I'm a rocker, dude, through and through. Yeah, and uh, it would, would not be until later in his in his um, kind of mid to late 40s that his his life was kind of in two parts. It was the yeah. the wild exploring yep. and categorizing and uh, botanical categorization of everything he could find. Mm-hmm. And then the mid-40s on when he uh, was very much a political advocate and yeah. – uh, Kind of did that because he felt he had to. He would have rather – he had a T-shirt on the whole time that said, I'd rather be camping. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I also saw that he went back after a, a little bit of a hiatus, I think like a nine-month hiatus toward the end when he finally left Yosemite for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he felt like he was an intruder there. Like he, oh, he felt like his time there was done and he knew that he had to be out of there in the world to advocate for it. For the preservation of this area, but also that he, like he just he felt like that chapter was yeah. closed. So, Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's they they always say no no when it's time to leave, and I guess he did. <laughs> they always say that. Um, so let's talk about John Muir starting even younger than that. Though. Yeah, let's start with minute one. Okay. Uh, he was born April 21, 1838. He of uh, Scottish heritage. He was born in Dunbar. Yeah. And came to the U.S. when he was eleven. Uh, he and his family settled in. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, eventually in Hickory Hill on an 80-acre farm near Portage. Uh, his father was a very stern Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super religious. Yeah, like it kind of, if you ever seen the movie The Witch, sort of along those lines. Wow, where that, man, that's such a great movie. Punishment was very heavy and strict. If and, you beat your child yeah. because they haven't re- memorized a Bible verse to your satisfaction— you may be over the over the line. I think I'm not going to go so far as to say there was physical abuse. But, oh, there was. Oh, there was with yeah. his father. Yes, for that reason. Okay, I mean, I saw like corporal punishment, but like you know, these days spanking a kid is abuse. Like I don't know where it fell on the meter back then. I don't. I, well, I can't say where it fell on the meter. I, I, I can't say either. But yes, he would be. But today he, was, he would be imprisoned. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but one of the reasons John Muir became John Muir is because of his father, because his the wilderness in Wisconsin was his refuge and his literal escape to kind of get away from him. So who knows what would have been, you know, what would have happened had his father not been like that. Even. Yeah, and I don't want to fully mischaracterize his father, just partially. Um, he was he was very stern, but John Muir was convinced that his father loved him still and cared about him and sure. was even maybe a little bit proud of him in the ways that he deviated from what his father wanted for him. And one of the main ways that he deviated from him was in book learning, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, all his father was concerned with was his his boys working the land, farming, knowing farming, and knowing the Bible. They didn't need to know anything else. But that wasn't enough for John Muir. He was basically a born tinkerer, a born engineer, but he did not have free time. His father was like, you're either working in the field or you're studying the Bible Mm -hmm. or you're getting hit with the switch by me. Right. It's one of those three things is what you're doing for all of your waking hours. Yeah. And so John Muir hit upon the idea of expanding his waking hours. And so as a youth, he started waking up at one in the morning so that he could have five hours to himself between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. when he was expected to start working on the farm to just read or tinker or invent And he actually used that to really great effect. Yeah, so he made a lot of little inventions. Uh, 
There was one called an early rising machine, which was basically a, a alarm clock attached to his bed that would quite literally tip his bed up and tip him out of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't get the feeling that he needed it because he's getting up at 1 a.m. anyway. His father used it. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he eventually would go to the state fair in Madison in 1860 mm-hmm. with a lot of his inventions and was sort of a boy wonder inventor. Well, and, he was 22 at the time. Well, but he was, I think he had invented a lot of this stuff in his teen years too, though. Right. But imagine like, you know, at 22 in the 1880s or you're, 60s. Yeah, you're like, almost retired. You're, you're, like imagine <laughs> the middle-aged guy showing up at the 4-H fair being like, can I enter? Uh, one of the things, um, a big relationship in his life that would last throughout his life, um, he studied with a man named Ezra Carr and his wife, Jean Carr, mm-hmm. became a really big mentor for him and exposed him to, uh, you know, botany basically, like she was a scientist and he loved the outdoors, but she was like, hey, but botany is like a real science to it. Yeah. And was a really big uh, influence in his life, introduced him to Emerson later, like literally picked out a wife for him that was like, this is who you need to marry. Yeah, because apparently she, can support she was a good you matchmaker your... then too. It seems like it. Because they, they loved each other very yeah. much. And um, she was totally fine with his comings and goings and all that. And sure. They were good together. Comings and goings is in going uh, to like Australia or yeah. Japan or something. That made it sound a little bit like, you know, dalliances. No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. No, as a matter of fact, I, I read that um, he left Yosemite at one point because of unwanted attention from a woman. Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> he was like, he was camping and this lady hiked by and looked at him. And he's like, I'm out <laughs> of here. sailor. Well, he was an interesting dude in that he was a bit like a hermit, but apparently also really enjoyed these one-on-one conversations of people he would meet yeah, along the way. He was like, a, he was kind of billed as a wild man of the wilderness. Yeah. But he very much craved and needed human interaction as well. It was, yeah. It was very odd. It's usually one way or the other in that sense, you know? Yeah. So he's working uh, eventually the industrial part of his life because he was such a good tinker and engineer. Uh-huh. He got work uh, doing stuff like that. And in March of 1867, he's working at a carriage parts shop in Indianapolis. Oh, his uh, an all pierced like literally went into his eye <laughs> and pierced it. And for a while, he, he was blind in both eyes yeah. because of that. It was such a bad wound that his other eye was like, I'm out too. Yeah, just because I feel bad for my buddy over there. Sympathy blindness. <laughs> uh, and this was a very monumental injury because after this, he was like, you know what? Forget this stuff. I don't want to ever be around another machine with moving parts again. Right. And I just want to walk. He said that he bade adieu to all my mechanical inventions, determined to devote the rest of my life to the study of all the inventions of God. Yeah, he stayed religious. We should point out he, he was is, super religious. It's not like because of his dad he went atheist or something. No. Like in all of his writings and talking about the natural world. It's all Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. <laughs> well, it was all very spiritual and God-oriented. He was like, this is my church, though. Exactly. Uh, the outdoors, which I can, you know respect on a certain level. He uh, he he loved creation with the capital C. Sure. So um w- when he's wandering like he really wandered. He was kind of a Johnny Appleseed type almost. He walked from Indiana mm-hmm. where the, the his I guess he recovered from his all injury. Mm-hmm. Um all the way down to Cedar Key, Florida on the Gulf Coast. 
Yeah. It's like a thousand miles. He just walked down there and pretty quickly too. Caught malaria in Cedar Key, almost died, recovered, sailed to Cuba from there, sailed on to Panama from there, and made it all the way to San Francisco. And apparently there's a story that um, may or may not be true where he got to San Francisco, was immediately overwhelmed by this, the hustle and bustle of the I think, city. Yeah, I think that's true. And said, "Where's the? How, what's the fastest way out of the city? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the deal. He got right out of there. And the guy, the guy he asked said, well, where do you want to go? And he said, anywhere wild. And he pointed him in the direction of Yosemite and apparently walked 300 miles to Yosemite and fell in love. That's right. And on the way out of town, someone yelled, yelled don't forget the rice aroni It's the San Francisco treat. And he went, what? <laughs> Sure. Jerry's like... Jerry liked Disgusted it. by that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he split immediately <laughs> to get out there and went to California. And... Uh, he was it, in California. Well, yeah. He went to Yosemite. He went to Yosemite. But he walked. Right. And he walked because... For a very specific reason. He walked because that was the most intimate way to see the botanic and and uh and write about the botanic world around him. Yeah, because this was a time when you could be like remember our bone wars episode that you hooked us up with? Who? Bone wars? Oh, sure. Like this was a time where like you or I could just start studying books and be like, "Okay, I'm a paleontologist. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a botanist. Okay, I'm a geologist." All this stuff these yeah. these fields were so young that anybody who had, like, half a brain and, like, a, and a pencil, pencil and, yeah. and a pa- piece of paper yeah. could basically contribute to the field. Sure. And that's what I guess he was doing along the way. He definitely did that in Yosemite. Oh, yeah. He did that everywhere he went. And it's a good lesson, too. To like, I remember in when Emily and I lived in L.A., I had a couple of times where I had to drive to my mechanic and leave my car, and this was pre-rideshare services, and taxis were basically non-existent in L.A., so I would walk these long distances home and you, you just, you notice everything mm-hmm. like these neighborhoods that I drove around every day all the time. Yeah, yeah. And you would just notice like and study every house, every mailbox, every driveway. Yeah. And it's really just a, a lesson to people to like to, to walk places when you can. There's a group in the UK, I think called Amblers. Yeah. We talked about them once. Okay. And they're, they're basically, they, I think their motto is they're dedicated to the idea that humans, human locomotion should be no more than like three and a half miles an hour, which is about the speed that you walk, you know? (laughs) And then that, that's how you take in everything. It's absolutely true. Yeah. That's my two favorite speeds are two and a half miles an hour Mm -hmm. and like 95 on the expressway. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One of the two. Um, so John Muir makes it to Yosemite. Have we taken a break yet? No, nah, let's take a break. I think this is a great place for yeah. a break, don't you? He's sure. entering Yosemite for the first time, everybody. Imagine it. Okay, so John Muir's in Yosemite, and he decides that he needs a little bit of work. Um, I think he stayed the first time for like 10 days. And a lot of people who know some about John Muir and especially associated with Yosemite and the national parks basically think he showed up in Yosemite and never left and lived and died there. 
That's not true. No. He lived there for about a six-year period, I think. Yeah, out of 76 years of his life. Yeah, so 1868 to 1874, I believe. Yeah, and those were a very, like, California just totally rocked his world. Yeah. Once he got out there. Yeah, because he was living in Indianapolis. So, I mean, basically anywhere would rock your world. But imagine (laughs) showing up to California in the mid-19th century or late 19th century and seeing it. Yeah, and especially if you've – I remember when I did my big out west trip years ago with my best friend over like four months. In the summer, driving through Utah and Arizona and everywhere, where it's just so blazing hot. Mm -hmm. And then when you drive over, especially Southern California, California, (laughs) you drive over that mountain range, and it's like someone turned on the air conditioning. Oh, yeah. And I just remember thinking like, man, imagine what it must have been like for westward expansion mm-hmm. when they finally got into the L.A. Basin. Yeah. We're just like, whoa. Like, so it's this is where I'm staying. in the L.A. Basin? Yeah, I mean, you go where that mountain range uh-huh. and it's just the Pacific Ocean breezes are oh, just okay. kind of locked in there. Wow, it's really hot on the other side then, huh? Yeah, like Death Valley is hotter than okay. Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not up on my California geography. Yeah. I think Germany's landlocked. Give me a break. No, it's very lovely and cool near the coast. So, um... So, yeah, I can imagine what it must have been like as like a 19th century yeah. traveler or something like that. But um, he uh, – when John Muir got there, as I was saying, um, he he stayed for like 10 days and was like, I need some money. And he went back. I guess he, he hitched a ride or else walked back, got some more money. And then he came back to Yosemite. He's like, I'm staying here for a while. Yeah. So he got work in Yosemite as a sheep herder. One of his first jobs was herding 2,000 sheep up into the Sierras. So much fun, I bet. Uh, He hated it. He learned to hate sheep. He called them hooved locusts. And he started to despise sheep because he thought that they had a a disproportionately – bad impact on the natural surroundings. They just ate everything. Well, they did. They, they kind of ravaged Yosemite to a large degree. Right. So he came to kind of see livestock as an extension of human occupation yeah. of these wild lands and mm-hmm. how detrimental it was. And it, it really occurred to him during this first little, you know, few-month period where he was a sheep herder. Yeah, and I think also the the horse and uh, the horses that led people on expeditions and stuff. Yeah. They also overgrazed, yeah. and the cattle overgrazed, yeah. and they were logging, and Yosemite was, I think it was under the uh, the care of the state of California. It was a state park at this point mm-hmm. because it had been gifted by, uh, well, not gifted, but it was a <laughs> land grant from Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the, of the Civil War to California. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. <laughs> you take Yosemite. But it was, uh, it was really mismanaged and just... Um, I mean, compared to what they're doing now, it was in a pretty bad state. Yeah, which is one reason why John Muir was pushing for it to become a national park so that it would be under the care of the federal government who hopefully would enforce the laws of preservation a lot more than California had. So he shows up in Yosemite. He starts shepherding. But more than anything, the thing that he became known for was these jaunts where – he would become like the first white man to scale Cathedral Rock. Right. Um, he would like note all these fossil formations mm-hmm. or take samples of them and send them back to like the newly forming University of California. Um, he would like submit botany like descriptions. Mm-hmm. Like he was just basically is like exploring 
uh, Yosemite and documenting the whole place while at the same time um, taking notes for what would become a series of like books, essays. Like he really made his name as like a, a writer. Like he made a career for himself just as a writer. We think of him as like this conservationist naturalist and that's where he was coming from. But at the time he was a successful writer and after he left Yosemite. Yeah, I mean another big uh, kind of central relationship for him was uh, a man named Robert Underwood Johnson who um, was the editor of Century Magazine. Mm-hmm. And Century Magazine was very much a sort of a progressive naturalist rag. And he uh, – and and we should say that this, you know, we're not like – this is the most interesting parts of his life. Like he also worked for a decade or more on uh, – once he got married, he married a woman named Louis uh, Louisa Wanda Strinsel in 1880 – and her family had uh, had a couple of daughters, Wanda and Helen, and her family had a fruit farm, a fruit ranch, and he lived there in Martinez, California, um, and kind of quit doing his adventuring for a full decade and ran this farm mm-hmm. and worked as a farmer. So all this stuff was going on, and then uh, Robert Underwood Johnson basically doggedly pursued uh, Muir and said, listen, man, you got to – we need you. You got to start writing again because you're the foremost naturalist in the country right now, yeah. Uh, according to me and only me, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we need you to start writing some stuff and start pushing for political change. And he was working on this farm this whole time, and eventually he was like, "All right, you know, what do you what do you got for me?" So the reason uh, Johnson sought him out was because he made a name for himself even while he was still living in Yosemite. Yeah, like you can kind of look at Muir's life; like he went in got all of the experience he could possibly need in these mm-hmm. six years living basically the, that whole stretch in Yosemite. Living and deliberately. Then, and then went and like and used that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that like a Nomadland reference? Living deliberately? Yeah. Now, wasn't that uh, Thoreau? Oh, yeah. Okay. I went to the woods deli- deliberately. Living deliciously is from The Witch. <laughs> um, but but it was basically like imagine if like you had like a crazy six-year period in your 20s. And then you spent the rest of your life exploiting that, writing about it, talking about yeah. it, making a name for yourself, being a cause celeb from that experience. That's that's basically what he did. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of people that did that. Sure. You know? Who else? I don't know. I can't think of one. Well, Thoreau's a great example. He went and lived at Walden for, what, a year? And that was like, we're still talking about that guy today. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. And I've even heard that Walden Pond was like, town was right there. Yeah. It's like the... Uh, the Pizza Hut next to the pyramids. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> kind of like that, but yeah. yeah. Sort of. So Muir, uh, another big important relationship that he made was with uh, a president named Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt is known for um, the 280 million acres of federal land that he protected, mm-hmm. uh, among other things. But Muir was a big reason why. I mean, Roosevelt was into preservation anyway. It's not like Muir came in and completely, like, changed his mind about everything. Sure. But Roosevelt knew about him and and quite literally said, I, I, I would like you to take me camping in Yosemite for four days. Mm-hmm. He said, just the two of us. Didn't they have to, like, give the, the um, Secret Service the slip? Well, I think there was Secret Service there because apparently they just never shut up and the Secret Service people – in like one of their journals said like these two like won't shut up. All they're doing is just yammering at each other about the woods. So I don't know if they gave them the slip or not, but I know that originally the request was the Roosevelt was like, 
I don't want anyone around, man. I just want you and I to get out there in the woods and, like, talk about this stuff. Yeah, like wax mustache to wax mustache. <laughs> That's right. So he works hand-in-hand with Roosevelt to do a lot of work. I think the first or one of the first national monuments they established was Petrified Forest in Arizona. Which um, he went out there and was like, oh, this place is kind of cool. He, he moved there for his daughter's health, apparently. And while he was there, he's like, oh, there's a petrified forest. I'll just start submitting fossil oh, specimens. Did? Yeah. Oh, interesting. He just did the same thing there as an older man that he did earlier at Yosemite. Yeah, and I think the deal with Yosemite was because it was a state park, the actual Yosemite Valley wasn't part of the park boundaries. The right. Mariposa Grove of those giant sequoia trees wasn't actually part of the boundary. And Muir was like, man, this this is what needs to be a part of the boundary more than anything. Yeah, so that was one of the first things that um, the Sierra Club took up. It was like basically their first initiative. And John Muir is synonymous with the Sierra Club because he was the first president. He was for, I think— um, His whole life. Basically 20 years or something like that. He yeah, died the rest ni- of his life, yeah. Yeah, he died in 1914, and he became the uh, president of Sierra Club in 1892. So um, he helped found this organization that's still around today. And one of the first initiatives, one of their first pushes was to get the Yosemite Valley and the, uh, what's the name of the forest? The or the Mariposa? Mariposa Forest. Yeah. The Sequoia Grove mm-hmm. included into the boundaries of the National Park. And they were finally successful in 1906. And from that success, they um, just started having more and more successes and eventually expanded because initially they were focused on the West, basically. Right. Because... That's where all these people who founded the club lived, and mm-hmm. that's what they cared about. They said, well, there's other places where this battle needs to be fought as where well. Where there's nice stuff. And they became <laughs> this national uh, advocacy group that will sue your pants off if you try to mess with the national park. Yeah, they uh, opened an office in D.C. in 63 and, like you said, went off, you know, Alaska, Florida. Very key in trying to get things like the Clean Air Act passed, the Wilderness Act, uh, the EPA created – in 1970. And uh, Alaska is kind of key, too, in Muir's life because he he gets engaged to Louie. Mm-hmm. And I think in those days, he kind of got just got engaged and got married pretty quickly. Like there, was, there, were, there weren't these long, drawn-out engagements. Okay. But there was in his case because he was like, all right, we're engaged. You're, you are a good match. Thank you, Gene Carr. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to go to Alaska now. <laughs> right. And he did. He went to Alaska for a period. And if you think Alaska is like – you know, uncharted and wild now. Like, I imagine do. what it was like back then. I will. I'm sure his uh, diary was like, what? No snakes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck is this place? Uh, but like I said, they eventually did get married and have those daughters, and she very sadly passed away in 1905 of cancer. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he, um, like, he had to go home to be with her uh, when she died. Like, he was away uh-huh. when she was partially uh for part of the time while she was sick. Well, that's sad. It's very, very sad. I guess that explains why he and his daughters were the only ones that moved to Arizona for his daughter's health then. I guess that uh, means what, that she had passed by I think so. Yeah, okay. That's sad. Because uh, she supposedly was well known for her, um, I saw that she was a very gentle person, a very sweet person. Yeah, and very supportive of his efforts. Like, mm-hmm. was truly a good match. She loved the wilderness and nature and God and all those things. Oh, she loved God. Don't get her started on God. <laughs> Should we take our second break? I think so. <laughs> All right.
So we were talking about John Muir and the Sierra Club, Chuck, and and it's really hard to understate what Muir like, impact. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, what impact he had. Because, like I said, he was a, a successful writer. He was really good at writing. And, and also he did really crazy stuff like writing an avalanche. Um, there's a very famous essay that he wrote called The Windstorm in the Forest mm-hmm. um, that he describes what it was like to climb up the, the top of a pine tree and hang on for hours during a storm in the Sierras Yeah, and how n- awesome nuts it was. Um, and, and like, just basically saying, like, this this is real. This is nature. Like, you could, yeah. if you go out to these places, you could do this stuff. But it, these, this is not going to be around if we keep building railroads through right. these places or we build dams or we let livestock just graze wherever. Like, we can't just not do something about it. It has to be preserved and protected. And he inspired people during his lifetime and long after his lifetime as well. Yeah, I think I, the, I watched a pretty cool American Masters documentary on this, and um, th- this one guy, historian, was like, there was a little bit of macho involved. Mm. Like, he was this great naturalist, not to take anything away, but, like, riding the avalanche and, like, climbing a tree during a snowstorm at the top or a, a rainstorm at the top of a mountain. He said there was a little, like, machismo involved in that, like, sure. look it's, at me, it's Hemingway-esque. Yeah, or, or Bodhi from Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was that... Uh, Patrick um, Swayze. Yeah, or was it uh, Keanu? Keanu Reeves. That was Johnny Utah, my friend. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so Bodie was, or was that Flea from no, Red no. Hot Chili Peppers? That's right. Uh, but it was actually Anthony Kiedis. Kiedis that was in Point Break. Sure. Flea may have been in it, but Kiedis was one of the ruffians that got his foot I shot off. I think, no, no, I know. He was the leader of the bad guys surfer club. Yeah, yeah. But I think Flea was in was that in club. Too. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, well, was he naked except for a sock on his Probably. genitalia? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Well, then uh, pants, pants made of teddy bears. Did we take our second break? Yeah, we just did, man. Yeah, we sure did. So, but I, I was leading up to something. So we've been talking about what a great guy John Muir was. Mm-hmm. And that's how he was um, looked at and respected for decades and decades, a century actually and more. Um, He was looked at a great man, maybe a little macho, sure, but that's forgivable if uh, that machismo is directed toward riding a tree in a storm rather than, you know, picking bar fights in Lisbon or something like that, you know? Yeah, good point. Thank you. So – when we did our episode on on Girl Scouts, I talked about how like Juliet Gordon Lowe was one of those rare historic figures from a century or so ago that you were like, and actually she holds up today. Right. John Muir is not that same way. There, there no. was a, uh, a a real, um, I guess, a mea culpa sort of a reckoning. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's exactly what it was—a reckoning yeah. by the Sierra Club uh, not too many years ago, where they basically said. Hey, John Muir was great in all these ways. He was also pretty racist. And, yeah, he was a product of his time mm-hmm. and the way of thinking, which we'll talk about. Um, but he was still pretty racist. And, in fact, the whole basis of the national park system was built on this racist ideology. Yeah. And it's we're still basically looking at it the same way today. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because— the Sierra Club even acknowledged that the, our first our first years as a as a as a group was based on the notion of white people trying to protect uh, 
the land that white people wanted to hike through right. and enjoy as, as campers and recreationalists. Yes. And in his earlier years, I think kind of through his 30s, up until his 30s, he had sort of bad things to say about people of color, whether it was indigenous peoples uh, in the United States mm-hmm. or black people, and um, used disparaging language toward them, which – the whole thing with the indigenous peoples is really counterintuitive because they were so aligned with his philosophies right. of how you inhabit a land and share a land mm-hmm. and use it and don't abuse it. And, you know, uh, it, it really doesn't make much sense. And supposedly, he, I think in his 40s, he started to come around, especially when he went to Alaska. Uh-huh. Uh, because they um, indigenous people served as his guides, uh-huh. and he started to learn more from them. And I think things turned around a bit at that point. Yeah. But uh, the Sierra Club, you know, spent a lot of time over the past few years trying to sort of bring this to light and not whitewash it and say, hey, this is what it was. No, they, and they did a very good job of it, actually. I think so, yeah. So um, I was saying that he was a product of his time, and he very much was. Yeah. There was uh, an idea before his time, say the 1820s, 1830s, yeah. when the West was like the frontier right? and the, the United States didn't really need it at the time, where there was this view of the Native American as this, this um, noble race that was being encroached upon by humanity and that we, we needed to preserve this wild area. This was decades before John Muir came around, this yeah. idea that we needed to preserve this stuff. But we also needed to preserve Native Americans and their culture in this land that we're preserving. Right. So the initial idea for national parks was that the, the Native Americans would live on this land just as they always had, and it would be their land, but it would also be America's national parks that would be protected. And then the railroad came, and all of a sudden, the U.S. started expanding further and further west, faster and faster. Yeah. And now the, the Native Americans weren't this— group of people over there right. that you could kind of idealize. They were now in the way of this westward yeah. expansion. So racism toward them went through the roof. Yeah. And now there was this idea that Native American culture was already dead, mm-hmm. that the best of the, the culture had died in the last decades and centuries, and that it was all the white man's fault, but what's done is done. And so let's just make this decline into extinction as comfortable as possible and preserve Native Americans, not on our national park land, but we'll mm-hmm. just make reservations for them to go over there and just die off. And it's sad, but that's just the way it is. And that that is the mentality that John Muir became a conservationist within, the larger zeitgeist. Right. That that you no human should be on the land. But in particular, Native Americans shouldn't be there anyway because this is our white people land. Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad the Sierra Club and, and people in general are more comfortable uh, calling this stuff what it is now. Like even in that American Masters, there was one line where they said like, you know, early on he, you know, he, he I don't even remember what they said. I don't even think they said disparaging, but like he said some things were not so nice. For Native American Indians is what they said. <laughs> Did he, like, cough it while he was saying it? Yeah, and it was just very quickly, like, they wouldn't dare say that he had racist points of view. Yeah. Uh, you just didn't say stuff like that. But I think now people are more comfortable with saying, using that word and saying, you know, this is how he was for a time in his life. Yeah. And we got we to gotta reckon with that because it's part of our history of, of a 
of a foundation. For sure. And not just him. Like the national parks were they, – they evicted people. Yeah. And not just Native Americans. Depending on where you were, out west, Grand Canyon, Petrified Forest, Yosemite, Yellowstone, all of them required – forced evictions yeah. to basically create this pristine area right. that was never pristine and free of human settlement or occupation right. or use. That's They created that yeah. to create the national parks. And they used, like, this idea. There was this—I um, read this really interesting article, dude, from 2007. Mm-hmm. So it would have been groundbreaking at the time. It's called Ethnic Cleansing and America's Creation of National Parks by mm-hmm. Isaac Cantor. And uh, Cantor points out that like the people who were setting up and promoting these first national parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite would say there were never Native Americans here anyway. That's they were so all true. these were all they were afraid of spirits in this, you know, in this canyon. So yeah. they never hung out here anyway. But by the way, uh, can you send some military to protect us from Native <laughs> American attacks while we're setting up this national park? Yeah. So it's, it's like, um, which is it? Yeah, yeah, basically. But that's a really interesting. It was a really good read, and it was very eye opening, especially for two thousand seven. Uh, so I guess in closing, uh, we want to quickly mention one of his last, uh, what he was actually trying to do when he died and and failed at doing, was preventing the damming of the Hetch Hetchy Valley uh, in Yosemite. And basically, what happened in nineteen oh six was there was a devastating earthquake and fire that destroyed San Francisco, which I'd love to cover that as its own episode at some point. Yeah, totally. Basically completely destroyed it. Uh, and rice everywhere. <laughs> and one of the reasons that the fire destroyed it was because their water uh, – uh, what do you call them? Water uh, – Water people? Their water system. I'll just say that. Sure. Um, was destroyed by the earthquake. Oh, yeah. So San Francisco said we need a better, more reliable water supply – and we can get it in Yosemite with the Hetch Hetchy Valley if we dam that thing up. And he was like, you can't do this. It's in a national park. Mm-hmm. And he lost that effort. But he made such a stink. Uh, he was he was basically like, there are a lot of other ways you can get water. You're just doing this because it's easiest and cheapest. Mm-hmm. But you can get water to San Francisco in other ways. Uh, and like I said, he was not successful. He did lose that battle um, and then passed away of pneumonia at the age of 76 in 1914. Um, but he, they haven't, there hasn't been a dam built in, on national park land since then. Yeah, because that battle, even though he lost it, it really yeah. raised awareness. And it also kind of set a, a certain mindset in people's, totally. the public's mind that, no, you don't really mess with national parks. And I guess we had to lose one to, to, to get to that point. That's right. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. So that's John Muir for you, everybody. Go check out his writings and read about him and uh, see what you think. And also don't forget uh, ethnic cleansing and the creation of America's national parks. Good stuff. Uh, and since I said good stuff, of course, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, this is on the Cleft Palettes from Malcolm. Ooh, that's new. In Calgary. That came out today. Alberta. Okay. Canada. USA. No. <laughs> North America. <laughs> earth uh hey guys been an avid listener since my friend introduced me on a very hungover car ride home from an iron maiden concert about five years ago nice that's a great way to get turned on to the show yeah i thought i'd write in to share my experience with my son's cleft palate after listening to the episode Uh, my son was born with a midwife in june 2019 and had a ton of trouble breastfeeding which in hindsight was because he couldn't get any suction a couple of days later the midwife noticed what she thought was a cleft in the soft palate we took our newborn to the hospital and she was right We became regulars at the Alberta Children's Hospital's Cleft Clinic in Calgary, Alberta, and two years later, my son 
has had a surgery to repair his cleft palate and another to put tubes in his eardrums. Uh, parentheses, socialized healthcare is the best. Uh, the tubes are common with clefts because the muscles that drain the ear canals don't form properly, so the tubes allow fluid to leave the ear canals. One thing you didn't mention was the bifid uvula, which I have. Uh, it's related to clefts in that the muscles don't quite form properly, and it makes your uvula look more like a W than a teardrop. I saw that in research. I forgot to mention that. I did, too. I, I can't believe I forgot that. Uh, we are currently visiting a geneticist at the hospital to see if cleft and my bifid uvula, I'm sorry, bifid uvula are genetically related, but I think the answer is probably yes. Love listening to you guys. Look forward to each episode. That is Malcolm. Nice. Nice name, Malcolm. Um, that's great. Thank you very much for sharing. And also rock on, Maiden. Yeah, that's your name, Malcolm. Yeah, it's my middle name. It's a great name. Sure. Me and my friends the other night uh, were hanging out, me and Emily and Justin and Melissa. Uh-huh. We were having a few drinks, and we decided to start only going by our middle names. Oh, yeah. So it was uh, Alex, Don, Renee, and Wayne, Wayne. were hanging out. <laughs> For the rest of the night, we were just cracking jokes. Like someone would say something and be like, that is so Alex. That's, that's I, a fun thing. It, do. I don't know if it's going to stick, but it was really weird to think of myself as a Wayne. That could be a one-night thing. That I think just happened so. that one night. If I think, it sticks, I will be really surprised. I think we determined... I determined that you don't have a relation to your middle name, like an emotional connection, uh-huh. if when you hear that name out loud, you don't have any reaction. Like if I hear someone say a Chuck or someone else's Chuck, I go, oh. But if I hear someone say Wayne or whatever, I don't, I don't even, doesn't even register. You're like, that name is dead to me. Yeah. Sure. That sounds about right, right? <laughs> sure. All right. That's so Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch with us like Malcolm did, not me, the other Malcolm, uh, you the can, one in the middle. You can send uh, us an email like Malcolm did to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.